This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the 3D Pod. And my name is Joris Peels. And as always, I'm here with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Max. I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, today, Max, we've got Olaf Deagle. And Olaf is a professor of additive manufacturing and product development uh, in uh, the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And he does a lot of DFAM stuff, or design for additive manufacturing stuff, plus things like light weighting and topology optimization, a lot of software and preparatory stuff. You've also probably seen one of his 3D printed guitars, which he's been doing since 2012. And he does like the craziest, coolest projects with his students as well. Like at the moment, he's trying to hack the iPhone's facial recognition and he's 3D printing eyeballs to try to yeah. uh, circumvent the, <laughs> the facial recognition <laughs> of, the, of, the, uh, of the iPhone. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the 3D pod, Olaf. Good morning, Joyce. Yeah, and good morning, Maxwell. Pleasure to be here and good to be talking to you guys. Yeah, pleasure. Oh, so, yeah, you're all the way over in New Zealand. It's actually, you're on, you're, on, you're on Friday already and we're still on Thursday. <laughs> Yep, Friday morning here at the other end of the world. Oh, wow. So much more advanced than us, what can I say? Uh, (laughs) I'm curious right off the bat. Tell me about this uh, attempt to hack the iPhone face rack by uh, generating eyeballs, 3D printed eyeballs. So far, so good. So we can uh, can hack the OnePlus and the Samsung without too much of a problem, but the iPhone's got it requires you to pay attention. So it needs you to be moving your, your change. Oh. So I've separated out the eye. I printed my face a while ago, including the eyeballs, but now I've separated out the eyeballs as separate orbs that we can put in and move, try to make movement. And we're going to see this week, hopefully, if that's, if that's going to be enough to pull the iPhone. Or if the iPhone is actually iris, uh, you know, iris detection, then I'm going to have to go a step further and actually copy my iris rather than a, than a random generated iris. And does it, uh, just out of curiosity, is it, you have to make it move in a believable pattern or you're not sure yet? That I don't know yet. I suspect not in a, you know, not in a believable pattern because there's nothing to say you might not be squinned or some, some other ID effect. But I think they just have to right, right. attention to the iPhone. It would be really cool, <laughs> by the way, if they had it so that you needed to, to, to adjust the pupil somehow. Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll open and shut it a little bit. Yeah, next would, yeah. And, and why were you doing this? Why, why are you on this? Uh, why do you want to do this? <laughs> So, so really, I mean, it started off purely for fun. We, we got a Mimaki, a full-color 3D printer, just before Christmas. And we're, really, we were exploring what it could do, sort of pushing it to the limit of what you can do with full-color 3D printing. So we did a bunch, bunch of sort of sculpture-type projects and a lot of medical models. And the medical models then, then led to sort of just printing a random face. And then we just said, you know, can we push it further to the limit? You know, can we print a face that's realistic enough to fool facial recognition? And as I said, we tried it first with it with the simpler facial recognition systems, like on the OnePlus phone, and that worked. So we tried it on the iPhone, but it didn't work. So we th- we said, okay, what do we need to do to fool the iPhone? So it's more of an exercise of seeing how far we can push the technology. That really inspired me to write an article about like how we could be, for better or for worse, kind of a, a tool in the uh, in the you know facial recognition wars about you know governments trying to track you and track either ordinary citizens but also evil people. This would be a really great tool. Absolutely, yep. And did you think of the ramifications is of that? You're just, envisioning yeah. like V for Vendetta masks there? <laughs> look, look, I mean, no, I... 
this is where the technical side is probably almost ahead of the social and the ethical side because I think yeah. right now the faces right. are rigid, but it's it's not a lot a far step to go with some of the rubber materials, the elastomeric materials, to, be, to you know to be able to print a Mission Impossible type face that is photorealistic. So mm -hmm. yeah, I mean the social, the ethical side, I think probably needs to catch up a bit with the technology, which is quite interesting in itself. Yeah, exactly. Think of the crime possibilities yeah. for this, yep. like, you know, somebody being uh, <laughs> identified as being at a certain location, somebody being yep. identified as being somewhere else, or just generally not being able, there would be a doubt under just recognizing people generally. What if it was a yep. mask? I mean, these are things look, that look, are I mean, I mean, having said that, you'd have to be a fairly wealthy bank robber to be able to print one of these masks at the moment, but that will right. come <laughs> I'm wondering if it falls in the uncanny valley category. I think once we add in movement, I think it will be almost indistinguishable. You know, with, without the movement, it does fall into that uncanny valley where it's a little bit frightening. But I think once you bring in soft materials and moving eyes, I think you'll get past that uncanny valley and it'll become, you know, almost, you know, unrecognizable from the real thing. I, well, I think, but we'll see it. We'll see in a couple of weeks. Because yeah. how are you going to do that? How are you going to make it like with the softer materials? Because uh, you're using the Mimaki, right? Uh, yeah, at, at the moment you can. So even on the Stratasys, the soft materials tend to be the, the black, the, the dark material. So at the moment, we can't quite do call it flesh colored soft materials easily. But that's only a, you know, a, a step around the corner. It's, you know, all, all the companies from Mimaki Stratasys will be working mm -hmm. on better materials um, mm -hmm. able to achieve that sort of thing. And then, so that, that's a very exciting. I think that's, I'm glad you have the bandwidth to do that. It seems like you do have, like, at the University of Auckland, you do have, you, there is room to experiment right there. That, that sounds really exciting. Yeah, I mean, we describe ourselves as, you know, a, a playground for additive manufacturing where us, where companies, where students can come in and really experiment with the technologies to see how you can push them forward and do things that are a little bit different. Because I think that's where the innovation comes from. If you do the same thing you've been doing for the last 40 years, but you're just printing it, well, you know, great for prototyping, but probably not much for pushing the, the technology forward. You focus a lot on like the DFAM, the design for additive side. I mean, yeah. what kind of a, like, that's a part that's, I think it's, it's, there's a kind of like a, a lot of like confusion about it, I think. And I, and I think, you know, I'm of a mind to say that DFAM shouldn't exist because we're trying to teach these people to think like us and to, 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 to master this technology. And it's just too complicated and it's really holding additive back. What, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I fully agree with you. The problem is, you know, as designers, as engineers, for the last 40 years, we've been taught to think subtractively about, you know, CNC machining, about injection molding, where you make a mold. Um, sort of design for additive manufacturing is no, no different to any other design for manufacturing, design for injection molding. But the, the, the big challenge with 3D printing is people still think parts come off the machine looking shiny and, and like an iPhone quality, and they don't. And you know, the, the amount of hours I've spent removing support material and sanding down parts and painting parts to make them look like presentable products or sellable products. And, and that's where design for additive manufacturing comes in, trying to design it so when you print it, it com comes off the printer as close to the sellable product as possible. We're still not quite there yet, but we're, we're getting, you know, steps closer every day, every week. Do you think we should make the tools much simpler? That, 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 or do we need to train people a lot to make them understand the way that we do? Or what's, um, what, what is your solution so, I mean, to this? I guess a bit of both. So, so I think right from, you know, from school age, <laughs> university, we need to start training people to think additively. But also on the software side, I think where right now the, the, the machines are still relatively stupid or the, or the software. So 
if the three of us are printing the same part, we're all three going to get different results because the software depends entirely on us and our knowledge to decide, should I print it horizontally, vertically, sideways? And each one of those will produce vastly different results in terms of support. So we need software that says, what's the purpose of the part? Is it an aesthetic part? Is it maximum strength? Is it minimum cost? And then based on that, you know, becomes a bit smarter and automatically orients the parts, decides the minimum or the best support strategies to use and so on. So yeah, I think it's a bit of both. The, the software is one area where we need a lot of growth. And I know all the manufacturers are working on it, but they're not quite there yet. And then I think the general education where designers, engineers tend to be, I've got to be careful what I say here, they tend to be fairly conservative in how they think. And because additive opens up a whole new way of doing things, we've got to teach the, the called the old fashioned engineer to think differently about it. And that's what we try to do in our lab is, is to open up the possibilities. So then engineers say, oh yes, I could do this for completely different application. Yeah, so What's I, the I, biggest hurdle that you get them over? Um, right now, like, I think- where, are you, where do you find it the most difficult? Sorry. I, I, I guess, well, I mean, one of the biggest hurdles we have, or one of the big hurdles, for example, is materials where uh, an engineer will come in and say, I need this printed in 316 stainless. And we say, well, why does it need to be 316 stainless? And it's usually because that's the way they've done it for the last 40 years rather than looking at you know, what's the function of the part and then how can we choose a different material that may be better and or cheaper to achieve an even better part that weighs half as much and so on. So it's, again, getting them to think past the traditional way they've done it for the last 40 years. Uh, that, that's just on the material side. And, and the same goes for the design side, you know, designing things that are, for example, self-supporting. So you don't need support right. material is another way of thinking. Um, what would your dream like additive manufacturing software look like? Would it literally be like one click, like right click print or? or yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, ideally directly from the CAD because all of us work with whatever our favorite CAD package is and it doesn't really matter what it is, but ultimately we want the printability integrated into whether it's Clio or SolidWorks or Inventor doesn't matter. But, you know, you have some kind of a wizard that asks, you know, what's your number one objective? Is it making the cheapest possible part? Is it making the strongest possible part? Is it making whatever the, it might be. And then from that, it automatically decides for you, um, you know, A, how to print it, but also minimizing material. You know, if you tell it that it needs to be a certain functionality, usually there's, you know, 30, 60, 80% of the material on a part is not needed. But instead of us having to do that manually, the way we do it now with things like topology optimization, we want the CAD software to pretty much do that for us automatically. Companies are working on that. So they're integrating topology optimization and lattices directly into their CAD. Uh, I'm, I'm, I know you're big on lattices. Like you have a, uh, you yep. do a lot of work on them. And I think the problem with lattices to me is that it's really interesting. A lot of people are working on it and it's, but it's really difficult to predict their behavior and predict how they'll stand up over time. So how do you get lattices to work or what's your, what's your ideas there? I think the first thing I do is I make them thick enough to be strong enough from an engineering point of view. A lot of people are doing lattices that are you know, 0.1 of a millimeter or 0.3 of a millimeter in, you know, the beams are, are really, really thin. You think about, you know, the strongest material in the world, an obtainium, and you think about a beam that's 0.1 of a million diameter, well, you're going to breathe on it, it's going to break. So it just doesn't make any sense. So having minimum, call it viable, printable thicknesses is pretty cool. So I, I very rarely print stuff that's less than, say, 0 0.6 of a millimeter, because I know at 0 0.6 of a meter on a short span, it's going to be a strong part. Now, from the simulated, of course, 
But in general, the way I use lattices, it's actually quite rare that the lattices I use are seen. They're normally hidden away inside the part as a way of lightweighting them. So think of them as a truss, you know, from first year engineering principles, a truss is more rigid than a solid beam. That's the way I think of them. I just replace the solid material with a strong truss. So I know the fatigue resistance is going to be good enough. And again, you can heat treat them to increase that sort of stuff. So, so it's a reasonably straightforward engineering problem of either simulating the lattice, whereas in the last probably two years, I haven't done much simulation of them because I've had enough experience now to know that with a certain geometry and a certain thickness, it will be a reliable lattice that's not going to crush or fatigue and fall apart if the part is vibrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting. Just seeing it as like internal trust geometry to me makes a lot more sense than well. First of all, I never understand why it needs to be visible, and I also because well, right. uh, yeah. it's cool. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's that, definitely that, an, an element to the cool factor where people will make their their lattices visible just because to show off that they've got lattices in there. Yeah, but yeah. in most cases, there's no re- nothing really to be gained from it. In fact, usually the opposite. If you imagine dirt getting into it, uh, it it's asking for trouble uh, making them visible. If as soon as you enclose them, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, exactly. It was the same with like at one point. I think I think we're so overwhelmed with the amount of things we can do. We all end up doing kind of the same thing. Like <laughs> like for for example, at one point there was everybody was doing fractals. Yep. And everybody right, was doing right, yep. all these fractal shapes, and everybody and everything looked the same. And I was like, how is this happening? We're all making the same looking stuff. And I guess I mean that's what what we're trying to do in our lab is to actually find practical applications for whatever it might be, be it lattices or fractals. We say, okay, rather than just printing, you know, a, a Yoda as a lattice, can we do something useful with it? By, I mean, usually lattices is about making parts that are much lighter than the original one. But the mm-hmm. same with anything else that gets discovered in the world of additive manufacturing is we try to find useful applications that help companies. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, I think I'm really excited about like right now. This is like now, right? I mean, uh, it's going to change over the next couple of weeks. End of arm tooling is for robots and grippers and stuff. Uh, heat sinks, uh, heat exchangers, mm-hmm. uh, RF or other antenna, EMI RF antenna, right? Yep. Uh, and, and oh yeah, meshes and filters. And uh, those are the things I'm really mega, mega excited in. And, 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 and to me, I, I like that you, you're looking at like you know value-added application, but for me the exciting thing is that we've always tried to pitch to the guy at uh, Lockheed, he should buy a whole bunch of machines, invest millions, and do everything differently. But for something like oh, a nozzle is another one. Some guy has a nozzle or a screen, he's not going to buy a machine. And the idea to for her, for example, make a service available that she could just say, I need a mesh that does this filtration and that does this size, uh, and this is the fastener. Please build it for me. Like to literally have like a mass customized tool. I love that as being able to really spread our technology rather than these slow processes. We have to work yep. like years with a company to get them to adopt at it. Yeah, and look, there's probably not many companies around the world that could justify getting you know several million dollars worth of metal and plastic, you know, industrial quality printers, and you know actually make money out of it. So most of them would benefit from using the various service bureaus that are out there. And as you said, you know, being able to take the design and sort of automate that a little bit. I mean, um, a couple of weeks ago, myself and Terry was, we did rings and there's an online site, uh, you know, the future of jewelry and you design your entire ring with your monogram or your STL file that puts it on the, and it's all fully, you know, it's sort of, yeah, I gotta be careful what I say here, but it's sort of designed for idiots, but it works really mm-hmm. well. It's, you know, a beautifully simple interface. And that's what you want with all of this. So you want a filter of a certain, you know, uh, porosity and they, 
say what they want in the software then automatically generates for them, sends it out to whichever service bureau is closest to them or cheaper or whatever it might be. And, you know, uh, two days later, they get their part back. I think but the problem is service bureaus to me, they say, oh, give us your geometry. And it's like, no, they don't know what they're doing. They're never going to give you geometry. And if it's going to be, you know, so I think to me, mass customization or some kind of like a tooling that, like you said, with sliders or making an idiot proof yep. to me is, because everyone yep. is an idiot when it comes to, you know, in certain areas <laughs> of their life. And, and, and so, you know, to me, having sliders in there and, and just specifying it and then having the part, part printed where there's a heat exchanger or like a, a mesh, a screen, I think is, is the ideal way forward. And I think, look, and right now, most service bureaus are just that. You email them your file, they print what you've given them, rather than helping you with the design. Now, it's helping you manually or with, call it, the, you know, the, the future software for you automatically. So I think we sort of need a new breed of service bureau that helps or advises with the design to make you, you know, otherwise, it's, you know, it's probably the slowest manufacturing technology in the world. So you, you've got to be, right. design, otherwise, it becomes very uneconomical. Uh, invest two million dollars like take a year <laughs> two guys <laughs> and maybe you'll be able to collect some parts out you know and then yep. and these parts will be more expensive than the ones you made before <laughs> it's gonna take you a week yeah. to make them <laughs> yeah so, so you know it comes down to almost you know, you've got to pick the low-hanging fruit so if you're a company that's you know where where can i add the most value to my product look i mean i'm simplifying it a little bit but you know i would say today the two main areas would be lightweighting and then mass customization for certain types of products so any, you think eyewear, for example, you know, that benefits by fitting mm -hmm. you perfectly so your glasses don't slide down. Anything that has to fit your body benefits from that. But as the software is still very young in that mass customization area and an area where we need a lot more work in. Yeah, well, totally. But I, I think uh, I, I'm hugely impressed. With also, like, like uh, an ex-colleague friend of mine like works there and stuff. But I'm hugely impressed with Twicket, for example, as a tool that yep. really does take care of the file beginning to end and, and make sure it's printable. Make sure you keep the wall thicknesses and stuff like that, and then uh, it manages the entire process. It has they have a lattice tool now, I think, as well. Or, yeah. yeah. So I think I think that's a very mature solution in my mind. Yeah, but, and I think in the next year, I think you know a lot of the growth will be on the software yeah. side. Machines will just keep getting faster and faster. You know, we need the machines absolutely to get faster. But I think software in the next year or two, my prediction is that that's where a lot of the work is going to go in. Yeah, uh, hmm. I mean, if you if you've ever made like, well, okay, first off, the STL is still with us, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's never going away. <laughs> I remember I was explaining to someone that we didn't have STL itself didn't have like a unit. <laughs> yeah. And that we had sometimes printed things the wrong size because we thought there were like inches and they were really like centimeters. Oh, look, and we get that all the time from student parts where they work right. in inches, not knowing they're working in inches, and we get these monstrously big parts, and I don't know, it's not supposed to be, you know. A few centimeters in size, so yeah, definitely a problem. Yeah, yeah. and I remember looking at the guy looking at me like these people are crazy. This is like a, this is a hobby. This is an industry, you know. <laughs> yeah, but um, but uh, and but uh, generally that kind of stuff. If we're looking at uh, SDL, we still need to, you know, are you are you like we still need to move to AMF eventually, right? Well, I mean, to my mind, you know, why do we need a, a, a format version at all? Again, if we're going directly from the CAD. Okay. Why can I not take my NX file, my PO file, my SolidWorks file, slice it directly in the native, whether it's Parasol or, 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 or mm -hmm. internal format or the CAD format, slice mm -hmm. it directly. As soon as you convert, you lose information. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you need to go directly from the native, whatever CAD it was done in, whether it's Inventor or anything else, slice in that format, send it to the printer. Uh, and you can do that. I mean, I can manually slice a file in SolidWorks into thousands of slices. Mm -hmm. it, 
painful, but I can do it. So, so you know, why not do that from a 3D printing point of view? Yeah, yeah. I think it would, it would be really quite interesting. And then what would you, like, you would exchange CAD formats as well, right? Or how would you do that? Yeah, look, I mean, there, there's this, you know, you know whether it's Step, IGES, Parasol, there's those sort of core kernels that most CAD software would run one of those. So at the very mm-hmm. least, if we could print directly from those native, call it international mm-hmm. standards of CAD files, that would be a big step forward where we can just send the parasolid file to whether it's the mm-hmm. bureau or the print shop or the university. And then from mm-hmm. that, generate the slices from that directly rather than converting to AMF or mm-hmm. 3M. Or, I mean, as I said, the worst is STL. But, you know, 3MF and AMF, they've been talking about for years, yet mm-hmm. nobody really is yet using it. Or, you know, most oh, software exactly. but it's not the standard by any means yet. Yeah, it's 2021 and AMF is still for bowling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, my but, printer um, uses G-code. <laughs> yeah, ah, okay. Yeah. yeah, my home printer uses a G-code to do it. Yeah. So it yeah. generates every file into a G-code file. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of the sort of desktop printers, the slicer, yeah. you know, they, they use G-code, which again, so mm-hmm. again, ultimately, I think all the machines will be running on G-code, even the, the very high-end, whether it's 3D systems, EOS, Stratasys machines. Internally, they're probably running on G code. You know, it's still all PLC mm-hmm. in the machine from 100 years ago. So, mm-hmm. yeah, good, good point. Why aren't we running straight from G code? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, I'm sure there's a plugin already for, for yep. most software to export as G code or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, some, there's, some, there's also G code translator tools and stuff like that to, to, to yeah. change it for printers and stuff. Yeah. So that could be, uh, that's also very interesting as well. But, um, and I think, okay, so on the one hand, we are hampered a bit by our file type. We're, we're going to be more hampered by our file type or our files as, you know, we get gradient parts and all this kind of really yeah. complexity. Oh, yeah. And, the old uh, curved and, layers and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I'm changing materials yeah. mid-flow. Yeah. yeah. So that's going to, I still think that's a problem. I, I like the idea of being able to do it in native CAD. That would be wonderful. I think it would be a, a real uh, yeah, real value add for whoever gets that to work consistently well, always, let's say. And, but then afterwards, like, do we have to, because now we're seeing a lot of, like, really new kind of uh, 3D printing software startups emerge, like, like for example, they just got N-Topology, for example, which is like yep. uh, your CAD, but then even more difficult. <laughs> yeah, N-Topology, <laughs> I've, I've, I've never... in 3D, there's a, there's a lot of them coming up, and they are yeah. actually quite amazing software packages, all of them, yeah. but a fairly steep learning curve to use them. We're using N-topology. Yeah. So most of our heat exchanges now we're doing with N-topology. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, think for, I think N-topology is fantastic for, for yeah. something that complicated, uh, yeah. and especially that repetitively complicated, yeah. let's say. Uh, but I mean, we're also amazing. finding that they, they are by no means CAD packages. So you can't do some basic CAD in there. So we're now developing the workflow to go from, you know, do all our main design in our, our native CAD, which happens to be solid works, but it could be anything, and then import into topology, then automatically update your heat exchanger or radiator sort of in a semi-automated way. So you combine native CAD and these new uh, modeling type CAD packages. Yeah, uh, exactly. But then at the same time, you would then want to check it in ANSYS, right? Or, you yep. know, so aren't you like, isn't it, isn't, doesn't it make more sense to have like one like native CAD? Is that like a paradigm we still need to stick with? Like there's one uh, CAD Look, software? I mean, you- it would be wonderful if you could do everything in one package. But in my experience, not just with 3D printing, it's very rare to be able to do everything in one. I mean, to give you the, the, the dumb example, you design your part in CAD, but at some stage, you still got to make a poster for it. And the poster you do in Photoshop or, or something like that. So, you know, if you're into engineering, if you're into design, you do need to get used to running multiple different software packages 
um, as it would be really, really nice if we, at least from a CAD point of view, from a simulation point of view, from an AM preparation point mm -hmm. of view, if we could do all of that in one packet would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I know all the companies, Dassault, Siemens, they're all working on it. Mm -hmm. But the risk is if you try to do too much, do you mm -hmm. break it? You know, so, so yeah. is it being simple and specializing in lattices only and leave the mm -hmm. CAD uh, a CAD specialist or mm -hmm. do you try to do everything yourself? Well, that's what Autodesk is trying to do that kind of with Fusion 360. It does have some yep. simulation elements in there and all this kind of stuff. Yep. Do you like this kind of this kind of approach? It's like, you know, the SaaS kind of thing? Yes, yes, I do, so long as it stays simple. Now, Fusion so far has kept it relatively simple. Um, mm -hmm. You know, others tend to make things more complicated when they try to build too much into it. Mm -hmm. um, so, as I said, it would be, you know, the ultimate is to have everything in one package. But I, I don't think we're quite there yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It's also too much to lose if you look at all these other, like the value propositions of these guys is kind of keeping each other in check as well, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. And look, ultimately, they probably, you know, they end up getting bought out by Autodesk or CD, right. the big players, and then they get integrated into their software somehow or another. Yeah, yeah exactly. And there should be competition on the, on the kind of like, you know, the, the really large companies like Dassault versus Absolutely. Autodesk. I think, yeah. I think it, it would be very scary for everyone if you all of a sudden had Autodesk or Autodesk or. or well, know. we wouldn't. We wouldn't see any growth. It's a competition that makes these companies work harder to grow to develop new things. So I think it's essential. Mm -hmm. yeah, you've also mentioned. I think you mentioned uh, Gen 3D or Gen. Uh, yep. What is it? Oh, I like that as well. By the way, that is like super simple. Yep. Yeah, and uh, they, they, you know, so right, what is Gen 3D? AM. It, it's a design for AM software. So let's say you're designing a manifold. You you you, you in 3D tell it where the entry and the exit points are and then it'll automatically map the pipes from one point to the other. Then you can drag and drop them and pull them and push them the way you want. And now Ooh. they're going into something a bit more closer to interpology, but they also do lattices and, and you know, whether it's gyroid lattices and so on. So mm -hmm. it, it's becoming a bigger package than when they first started up. And initially it was a design for AM uh, software mm -hmm. package. Very, very clever. Yeah, I loved it. I, lo I actually loved it. I played around with it. And I really kind of yep. like it felt, it felt really nice. And I, and I yep. really did a lot of what I needed to do. And I thought maybe that from some mega artisan dude, it would be like maybe limiting. Uh, but for me, it was very empowering. Kind of like I'm a it, it was quite nobody. a natural approach. It, it's sort of yeah. quite natural to drag and drop and pull things. It, it feels quite natural yeah. to do it that way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, uh, I like that a lot as well. And then I'm, um, do you think that, that so we're seeing also at the same from a software viewpoint, we're seeing the authoring, right? But this is a whole what I call the plumbing, the tool chain between that and uh, and getting your, your QA done essentially. That's super fragmented still. Yep. Do you think we need to integrate that or is that going to be like this huge patchwork of like a hundred different vendors as well? I think certainly for the time being, it will be a patchwork of a hundred different vendors. And also depends very much on the application. So if you do a medical or aerospace, then the QA is way more important than if you're doing, you know, Joe Bloggs engineering. And that's not to say that QA isn't important for them, but it's a different level of quality assurance and certification that you need to reach. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, we need one chain that does a whole lot. Now, whether it's one software package or multiple software packages, doesn't matter mm -hmm. so long as they're very closely integrated to each other and they feed back to each other. So if it's not reaching the quality assurance you want, it feeds back to the design stage or the AM preparation stage to correct that. Yeah, yeah. And, and do you think that the CAD needs to be like, like much more collaborative? Because in reality, we're seeing a lot of like people that are working together in teams and people in, in the company and outside the company. And I think the whole idea of having like a 
system-wide PLM system or what like, you know, Boeing with Katia has or something like that. Does that still make sense in a, in a world where it's so, you know, outsourced everything? Look, I, I mean, I think collaborative CAD would be really, I mean, seriously kick-ass. And we cool. need, <laughs> I mean, so far I've yet to see a PLM system that actually makes life easier. Most of them tend to make it more complicated because they have all these rules that you have to follow. And for creative people, uh, you know, following rules is not necessarily the easiest. But yeah. I mean, software where people can truly collaborate and influence each, each other's ideas, I think that would be a game changer from, a, from an engineering design point of view. I have a, like uh, Wikifactory, for example, is an online tool that lets people work together version files and work together on files and chat and yep. collaborate and stuff like that. So I'm a, I'm a shareholder, by the way. So that's a, uh, also as a, as a, as a, as a, as a side. But Although, like a, as you rightfully point out right there, Joyce, like we, yeah. we barely can do uh, online document uh, yeah. sharing. Yeah. Like we can, but it's yeah. still, you know, so the idea of doing it in 3D, uh, yeah. I could, as a software yeah. developer, I but could all, definitely all, see the problems with that. <laughs> but also, I mean, I think this is where there's a disconnect where the creative person probably doesn't care about version numbers, but the right. accountant, that's all they care about, that you're working on the right version. So yeah, okay. marrying those two so that it makes sense. So you have a versioning system that is a bit, trans, you know, it's, it's hidden behind the scenes, but it keeps track so that the designers can only ever work on the, on the latest version. Mm -hmm. Be, you know, really a you know a killer app. Yeah. Well, yeah, I should look at it. You should look at it. They're they're really working hard on it. So it's uh, it's very cool. And um, so and what are you are are you what I haven't seen? And like, okay, this is really funny. So I, I entered the three D printing market like thirteen years ago, and I'm like I'm thinking about taking a CAD class. I'm like, well, it's going to go so fast. Like by the time that I I know how to do CAD, <laughs> someone will have invented a really easy way to do it, like WordPress for stuff. You no. Know? Yep. And that hasn't happened. <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, it's an area where I think, you know, the, the, the gaming industry is miles ahead of it. I mean, I'm thinking uh, uh, Spore Creature Creator, which has been around yeah. for 10, 12 years, where you, uh -huh. where you dinosaurs, literally a five-year-old can push and pull and drag heads and spikes. And, and so you're doing incredibly complex organic CAD, but in a completely intuitive way. And most gaming is like that, where you play a game and you're designing these incredibly complex 3D objects yet nothing like any CAD system, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so to my mind, I think the CAD industry could learn a lot from the gaming industry in terms mm -hmm. of the usability for Joe Public. I mean, engineers, they like parametric CAD, they like everything being dimensioned mm -hmm. and trained, but for the creatives, you know, something that's a bit easier to use would be, uh, you know, have a big impact, I think. Yeah, uh, exactly. If it could just... I like the idea of using like uh, like a your scanner, the iPhone scanner to have like gesture based like modeling yep. and stuff like that, like clay, but then virtual clay. Yep. And also just like slider. I mean, uh, there's certain game engines and things like that. And there's these avatar making tools that I see somebody, they've made a little avatar for them for like WhatsApp or whatever that looks exactly like them. You yeah, I think, I think that's more the way I agree with you completely. I was like, that's more the way we need to look at this and say, how do we take away almost everything and, and let the person still create? Yeah. But this well, is where you know, it, do, it, it does get complicated as well because there's different skills. So I don't have the hand-eye coordination to sculpt, for example. If you give me a block of clay and you tell me to make a head, it's always going to end up looking like a monster. I just don't have that, that hand-eye coordination. And I, I've had phantom devices, you know, the digital pens where you can digitally sculpt a clay. I can't do anything with that. But you give me a parametric engineering design software and I can draw pretty much anything. So different people think mm -hmm. different ways. 
So I think you need to cover all the bases probably. Mm -hmm. Do you so, think a haptic system is needed at some point as an interface in order to uh, really break this barrier uh, down for the average person? Absolutely, for, for certain people. But again, I mean, so for me, haptic systems right. don't really work because I just, it, it's, it's, to me, I think the way to test people is you give them a block of clay and you say sculpt something, an ashtray. And mine, like when we were kids, we all had to make ashtrays at school, even if our parents <laughs> Yeah, and mine yeah. always looked like a well, not the prettiest thing. So, yeah. you know, that would be a test to see whether people are compatible with haptic devices, as if they have that hand-eye coordination to make something beautiful out of clay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I would complain to my parents that they didn't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Different times, yes. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> um, and and yeah. So and and then one of the things. I mean, I think if we look at uh, these kind of things, I mean. One of the things that you're really all about is topology optimization. And that's like, you know, that's like this giga buzzword now. I mean, yep. it's everywhere. And it's also like a lot of apps and a lot of like, you know, things are trying to do topology optimization or AI, machine learning, topology optimization, whatever, right? Yep. Generative uh, design is another buzzword. Yep. Yeah. Generative Ooh, I like design. that one. Yeah. yeah that, oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds very but, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just generally, I mean, what do you think is going to come before all that? Because there's a lot of people claiming stuff that just, you know, patently false, to be honest. And there's a lot of stuff that's just that seems a bit optimistic or, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Look, I, I mean, to me, yeah, you're right. There are a lot of buzzwords in there and people love buzzwords. But to me, you know, what it really comes down to, all of them, topology optimization, generative design, even less, it comes down to really making products that are lighter. That's generally the objective of all, you know, stronger, but lighter. Um, so these are just tools. So I use all of them or whichever works the best or whichever works mm -hmm. the easiest at the time. And, you know, Fusion 360 are now integrating it and Topology have added it to theirs. Um, most, you know, SolidWorks, Dassault, Siemens are also working mm -hmm. on it directly into their native CADs. But to me, it's, you know, what are you trying to do with it? If it's about making a product lighter, but stiffer or lighter, but more flexible, then you're using it for the right reason. But if you're just using it for the sake of saying, oh, this is a generative, uh, generative design part, I mean, so topology optimization, generative design are more or less the same thing, but topology optimization is more, it's a subtractive where we start with a big lump of material and remove the material that's not doing anything useful. Generative design, you start with a constraint and it grows the material, it's additive and grows them from one to the other. But the results are ultimately the same. It's about removing material that's not doing anything useful. Um, I now do a lot of my topology optimization directly in CAD. I'm without using any algorithm. I just do it you know, mentally and I draw a loft and I sweep parts to create what I can see as being the strongest and, and, and lightest path. And then I do a, a quick finite element analysis on it just to make sure it's not going to break. So you don't have to use all this software. But you know, as you said, it is a buzzword. People love, that, love to talk about it. But ultimately, the goal is to make things lighter, better, and stronger, I think. Could could you just teach this? Like, could you just teach like somebody who doesn't know anything about CAD or engineering to just like think lightweight or think of the look the type of structures that look a certain way? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of it is common sense. I, well, when I say common sense, if you have <laughs> a thing of how forces act, you know, if you have a bracket, you know, just a st standard L bracket on the wall, most people will be able to visualize that if you have a forty-five degree member sort of closing it into a triangle mm -hmm. if you build a shape with just an l bracket you'll see the shelf is a bit wobbly you put a 45 degree on and suddenly it becomes very rigid so, mm -hmm. so i say common sense but yeah maybe maybe not all people have that common sense but mm -hmm. so you can start to visualize and you get better and better as you do it a few times 
you start to be able to visualize how the forces are going to affect the part and then modify them then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you can also just like in a games engine, kind of physics engine or something like that, you yep. could also simulate, you can let people right. feel that or see that as well. Maybe. Yep. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, in the end, it's, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. If you don't understand what forces are acting on the, the, the mm -hmm. suspension of the car or the shelf bracket, if you, if you don't set it up right, then mm -hmm. probably not going to get much meaningful information out of it. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I've been looking, like, I wrote this Flow article a while back. It's kind of, like, I'm obsessed with it. But um, it's just the idea of, like, saying, let's not think of something as, like, a part or an assembly or something, but just look at the whole entire thing as, like, a flow material. So we can make a, a material essentially, like whether from the microstructure or from lattices or whatever, right? And yep. we can make a specific material for every single application or every single individual part. And we could look at how energy flows through this thing. And then, you know, then we're, we're thinking a completely different way. Do we need to think like that kind of way differently about engineering design? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, most of us and myself included, we still think at a part level. We design yeah. each component one at a time rather than thinking about the overall and, and, and designing it from an overall. And you probably find you can get rid of 50% of the components completely because they're just not yeah. needed if you look at it from an overall point of view, from a functionality point of view, rather than from a, a component mm -hmm. point of view. Yeah, yeah I, I totally agree. I think, I think it's going to be, I think we need to get, do something. I don't know if this is flow thing that I came up with. This is like the right way to do it, but it's just like, there, there needs to be a completely different way to like to look at this because otherwise they're just going to, the, the, these these old paradigms or these old ideas are just going to keep seeping through. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, to me, this is one of the things that, you know, additive manufacturing in a way it sort of forces you to think differently. And because mm -hmm. it forces you to think differently, you start to look at these different ways of approaching things, like from an overall flow point of view rather than from a component point of view. So it's, it's that ability to make you think differently that's important. Mm -hmm. It's additive manufacturing, whether it's sort of, you know, Arduino, Raspberry Pi, electronic prototype technology all of those make you just think about problems in a different way which means you're going to come mm -hmm. up with different solutions yeah no and i think one other thing is like uh one point i came up with this like additive engineering approach which is like the whole idea of like continually improving parts right yep and it means it, it makes a lot of sense with 3d printing we can test things on the go we can make a lot of iterations we know that people in serious engineering kind of things are making hundreds of iterations of parts and testing them and stuff do you think it, it, it has like but also there's a, a certain car company that's doing this on a live automobile, which I think is not a good idea. But, um, um, you know, do you think this iterative engineering needs to be more kind of like uh, more of a, a, a everyday kind of thing? Oh, look, look, I think so. I mean, but I think with the right design approach, you can typically do it in way fewer iterations than in the old days. And again, this is one of the, one of the beauties of additive manufacturing is the speed. You know, you can... You can you can design something and literally an hour later, you've got the real parts to test. So which means, you know, where in the past you could get through two, three, five iterations of an idea. Now you can get through 10 or 20 and you can, you know, out of those 20 ideas, 80% of them will probably be dumb ideas, but you don't really know until you actually physically realize them. And then you can pursue the most plausible or the most likely idea that will lead you to a workable solution that you can then you know, implement and sell. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. And what we completely forgot to talk about, by the way, is your guitar. So, oh, right. us, yeah, <laughs> oh my God. Um, what, tell us about how, why did you want to start making a 3D printed guitar? What was the idea behind that? Well, mostly it was, I mean, I used to play a lot of music in my younger days. I was in a fair few garage bands growing up. And back in 2011, there was a story in The Economist where they, I think it was called Print Me a Violin. Yeah, the violin. Yep, the yeah. violin. And I saw that and I said, that's incredible. 
And I thought, because I'd been using printing for prototyping since the, you know, the early mid nineties. And I said, you know, could I use that to actually print an electric guitar? So I designed my first one and it was sort of a triangular shape because that's the biggest I could fit in the machine I had. And I did a blog about it because they were still popular back then. And, and just the response from musicians around the world, they'd never seen anything like that from, a, from an aesthetic point of view. You know, these were really complex geometries for a guitar. And people started to email me and said, you know, can I buy one? And I said, oh, crap, what do I do now? So I've sold one. I sold another one. So right now I'm building number 88 and 89. So I've got about a dozen of them, one of each design in my collection. But it means I've sold about 74, 75 of them over the last uh, 10 years or so. Oh, oh. Gosh. That's nice. nice. And, I, I made a ukulele and, once. You made a ukulele? Oh, nice, yeah. <laughs> with a, with a 3D a pen. Yeah. Oh, my God. Really? Really? Yeah, really. It works. I have it in my office. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. It's a ni- nice, it? nice showpiece for sure. Having it's a, exactly. It's a nice showpiece. And then we even uh, we baked the PLA that we made it with to, to yeah. join it all together. Yep. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Okay, so I'm the only one that has not made a 3D printer. You're the only <laughs> one, Jarvis. I mean, come on! Like everyone does it. <laughs> I feel like a loser now. <laughs> okay. and, and you still do this? Uh, so you came up with the, the last one. I remember we, we wrote about it. We wrote the Xenomorph or something. Or is yeah, that the, the Alien guitar, and they have done the Beatles one. Think since then, yeah. and now I'm designing a Guardians of the Galaxy themed one. Which Ooh. I'm looking. There's there's a new start company. They've just been bought by desktop metal. I think called uh, uh, Forest, where they wood yeah. so i want to try printing the galaxy the guardians of the galaxy one in wood on that just to oh, see that'd what be happens. cool that'd yeah. be awesome dude awesome. yeah make it a group style one i am Groot. Uh, yeah well it's it's oh, there is Groot in it but it's the ego spaceship you know the ego oh oh very cool and then inside wow. of that you've got all the characters and then and then like the movie oh wow okay that's, that's pretty exciting good. That will be exciting. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, Olaf, thank you so much for your time today. That was absolutely wonderful to, to learn a lot about what you're up to and then what you think the future is going to bring for us. Absolute pleasure to be here and to talk to you guys. And uh, Max, thank you so much for being here as well. Always, Joris. Thanks for and hosting. Th- and, uh, <laughs> th- and thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and this is the 3D Pod. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.